Lord's Day, we began a four-part series in uh, Paul's second letter to the church of Thessalonica entitled Persevering in the Faith. And so I hope that you'll be turning in your Bible or in your bulletin to find our passage today. And as you do that, I'll say that uh, I read at least six different commentaries studying for this particular passage, and most of the scholars agree that this is one of the most obscure passages in all of Paul's letters. In fact, uh, in, in this passage, he'll talk about uh, what he calls the restraining influence in verses 6 and 7, and the great early theologian Augustine said, frankly, I confess I do not know what he Augustine didn't know what he meant, I don't think I will either. And so I'm making the point here that there are some things in this passage that we are not going to understand, that we are going to have questions about, and God doesn't give us the answers in Scripture. He gives us enough things to learn in this passage uh, for us to talk about today. But you know, as uh, Peter put it, in his second letter, the third chapter, the 16th verse, some of the things that Paul has written are hard to understand. Now, that's what Peter said, and we have one of those passages today in our study. But just keep that in mind. I'm going to read these words for us, the second chapter of verses 1 through 12. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers... Do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that... He takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had faith in Christ Now, Augustine said, I don't know what he meant there in verses 6 and 7, and we can understand why when we look at verse 5 where Paul says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Paul obviously gave them a good deal of teaching on the end times and on all of this, these uh, 
and he was with them face to face in Thessalonica. And so in our passage, we can see that he assumes that a lot of knowledge is already there. Knowledge that you and I don't have. And so we always need to remember the Reformation principle, but especially with a passage like this. And that Reformation principle is we interpret Scripture with Scripture. We find that in the very first chapter of Westminster Confession of Faith, paragraph 9, where it says the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And so that's why you hear John and me harp from time to time about we always, you know, if we're having trouble in a passage, we interpret Scripture with Scripture. We also need to keep in mind as we come to this passage that Paul himself was taught by what he calls a revelation of Jesus Christ in Galatians 1. And it also seems to me from reading in Galatians that he had some time with Peter as well. I don't know that we can be sure if he had any other time uh, with the apostles early on in his ministry, but that's where most of his teaching seems to have come from, Jesus and Peter. And while Jesus did not talk about this subject much, meaning the end times, the day of judgment, whatever you want to call it, he did speak to it at length in what scholars refer to as the Olivet Discourse, not long before his crucifixion, when he taught his disciples as he sat on the Mount of Olives. Now, uh, we find that in, in, in Matthew's Gospel in his 24th chapter, and I'm just going to read you a little bit of what Jesus says there because I want you to see his teaching on this issue as well as what Paul has to say in our passage. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn uh, to Matthew 24. And uh, I will begin to read in the latter part of verse 4. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, Take heed that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Sounds like today, doesn't it? Then Jesus says all this is just the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, and many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because wickedness is multiplied, most men's love will grow cold. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. words of Jesus that we just heard there in Matthew 24, and then 
read our passage from Paul, you can find many of the same points. Obviously, Paul had been taught by Jesus. He made some of the same points that Jesus made. First of all, there's a rejection by those who are not God and yet claim to be. They're out there deceiving people. Then there's a falling away by those who are supposedly believers because they've been led astray by those who are deceiving. And finally, there are certain things that have to take place before Jesus will return. And since those parallels are so easy to see in these two passages between Jesus and Paul, I think they make a good outline of what we need to discuss today, emphasizing primarily what Paul says, because after all, this is our text in 2 Thessalonians 2. And we'll talk about um, the rejection and the falling away and the rejection. In other words, those two things that are not happening that we can talk about together. We know that in Revelation 3, the Apostle John calls us together to the feeble of the world. I mean, think about that. That's what he does in the very beginning. From start to finish in the Bible, we see Satan leading people astray. We see him deceiving. We see him lying. He did it with Eve and Adam in Genesis 3. And we see him as this constant and consistent enemy of God all through both Testaments. We see especially in the New Testament um, uh, his, his mode of operation, if you will, with Jesus in the wilderness in Samaria. And here he is again in Paul's words in our passage in verse 9, where Paul says the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Now Paul speaks of this lawless one in verse 3 where he tells us that the day of the Lord will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who exalts himself, Paul says, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, do we know who this son of destruction is? No. Paul doesn't tell us. He doesn't give us enough information so that we can tell. We know that uh, Satan is behind him, but we don't know who he is. Now, there are a lot of theories, but you know, because we can't be sure, we're not going to waste our time talking about Satan, are we? I mean, we're not going to waste our time instead of wasting some of our time on preaching to ourselves. We can see that the rebellion comes first. In the Greek, that word that's translated rebellion is apostasia, from which we get our word apostasy or apostate. there's a turning away from a former position or, or the abandonment of former loyalties. And Paul is saying that a lot of people who supposedly say that they believe in Jesus, who are part of the church, 
are going to be led astray. They're going to fall away. An illustration of this type of person is Jesus. He was ultimately a tax collector. In the earlier chapters of the Gospels, we find out he's one of Jesus' twelve. You know, he goes everywhere where Jesus goes. And, and, and later in the Gospels, we find out that he was even the treasurer of the entire ministry of Jesus. But when it was time for the rubber to meet the road, he fell away. As the writer of Hebrews puts it in his third chapter, talking about how you and I need to be vigilant in our faith, he says, take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And in his first letter, John describes people like Judas in his second chapter when he says they went out from us, but they were not from us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued See, Judas was supposedly a professing believer and outwardly a member of Jesus' church who, having never truly believed, fell back into unbelief and condemnation. Now, I'm spending some time on this because we have lots of members from other denominational backgrounds, some of those traditions, believing that if you're saved, you can fall away. Even if you're saved. That's not what this text is describing. Because that's not what Scripture teaches. Again, we interpret Scripture with Scripture. If someone is truly saved, can they really fall away? No. The Hebrews verse makes it clear. Those who fall away have what? An unbelieving heart. A true relationship is not there in the first place. As those of the Reformed faith, we believe in what we refer to as the perseverance of the saints. There's a whole chapter on it in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 17. We don't believe in it because it's in the Westminster Confession of Faith. We believe in it because it's in Scripture in places like John 10, where Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. He goes on to say there, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. It's verses like that as to why we believe in the perseverance of the saints, meaning what saves, always saves. Does that mean we're going to be perfect in life? No, it does not. Does that mean we can't mess up? Sure we're going to mess up. You're human. But nobody can snatch us out of God's hand. Those whom God has saved by His power, He protects and they stay saved. Now right about now, because I always used to feel uncomfortable in standing back here when I start hearing people talk about I'm really saved and I'm not saved. And, and you may be having some of those thoughts too. Am, am I outwardly a Christian and inwardly not? I mean, am I a Jesus as well? Well, John speaks to this in his first letter, obviously based on 
teaching from Jesus himself. I've seen it referred to this way. According to John, there are three tests of a changing person. You know, sometimes you wonder whether you're saved or not. Here are the three tests of a saving faith according to the data of 1 John. In 1 John 5, 1, we see the doctrinal or the theological test. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ will be saved. If you believe that Jesus really is who he says he is, that he's the son of the living God, that he's the, the prophesied Messiah, that Old Testament prophets for hundreds of years said would come, you are a child of God. That's the doctrinal test. Then there's also a moral or ethical test in 1 John 2, 6. He who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In other words, you live according to his word. You know, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments. It's not that you're perfect, but each day you try and turn away from sin and you try to live a holy life, which is a set-apart life. That's what the word holy means. A set-apart life, set apart from the world. You're not living like the world. You're living like God calls you to live in His holy word. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. That is to say, true Christians love the church. And they love one another. And the guy that we should love, you know, we tend to tend and I've had so many people, but especially the older Christians, tell me how much they such a good crowd here today, we ought to have uh, ordination and separation service every Sunday. Say thanks for that. I could see more of you here today. Now, moving on in this passage, let's talk about what happens before the day of the Lord. Before Jesus returns, takes his people to himself, day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. But also look at verse 7 where he says the mystery
future and will intensify the work of Satan that's already going on in the world each and every day if you can believe that. I mean, that's what Scripture is saying. It's bad enough in this fallen and evil world the way it is, but it's even going to intensify and get worse. we go back to the words of Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, we pick up on what he said. He said the gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world. And you're probably thinking, well, with the internet, surely that's happening, that the gospel's been preached throughout the whole world. Well, you know, this is why ministries like Wycliffe Translators have been around all these years, because to make sure that all the people groups in the world have Scripture in their own language so that they can just pick up a Bible like you and I can and read the Word of God for themselves. Well, how close are we to that? All of the people groups in the world being reached, having, having the gospel of Jesus in their own language where they're not expecting to use it. According to the Joshua Project, there were 17,000 or 870 people groups that have been identified. Approximately 7,400 people groups are considered unreached. And what that means is that they have no indigenous communities of believing Christians who are able to proclaim the gospel, to pass it on to the rest of their people groups. Those 7,400 people groups that are considered unreached represent about 42% of the world's population, which ultimately means that we in the church need to continue to be faithful to the Great Commission, to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations in the Greek. That word nations is ethno, as in ethnic. Okay, so that's why we talk in terms of people groups. We know that a nation has borders, but within that one nation, there may be, you know, scores of different people groups speaking different languages, living in different territories. And so that's why we refer to it as So does Jesus, you know, you might be interested to know in his first parable right after that Olivet Discourse, is the character faith by John the Evangelist. What's Jesus talking about there? He's talking about how the wise men were prepared for the coming of the bridegroom. And so we need to be prepared, and we also need to stay busy as 
we discussed last week, fulfilling every good resolve and every work of faith by God's power. What other parable follows that all of that this story? When Jesus is talking about the Messiah, the parable of the talents, where two people, you know, have done what they're supposed to do with the gift they've received from the Master, and then one has not. And he's the evil servant. The other two receive the words, well done, good and faithful servant. But ultimately, that's something that's coming. It will pay us to know as well the cause behind those who are deceived. You see, it's not just that they're naive. spiritually immature, if we want to look at it that way, we can see the real issue at the end of verse 10. They refuse to love the truth and so be saved. You remember what Jesus said to his disciples in John 14? He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except Those who are perishing are those who have refused to love Jesus and to love His gospel, His word, and His will. This is what happened to Judas. He refused to love the truth more than his own way. This is what happened to Pilate. He had the truth right in front of him. And of course, Pilate didn't claim to be a believer. Judas did. But he didn't love the truth. And then you have Pilate who has the truth right in front of him, this pagan leader, this pagan uh, governor, and he refuses to believe and see Jesus for who he really is. You see, it's in the gift of Jesus to this world and his willingness to die on the cross for our sins that we see God's grace at work all through the gospel. This is God's plan to save people in the world. And in Romans 1, this is why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith to everyone who believes. And he goes on to say, Therefore the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth, so they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they misused their truth. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. You see, it's always the truth. That's what Judas did. That's what Pilate did. What about you? It's an important question to ask, but even more important to answer because it's the truth that gives 